We are back for another week in the world of the Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. It would be awesome to see you on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, where you can both suggest questions and guests for future episodes. I'd love to see you there. However, to our episode today, and if you haven't checked out last week's episode with Stripe COO, Claire Hughes-Johnson, then that really is a must, as I'm thrilled to be joined today by Claire's colleague, Christina Cordova. Christina leads the payments partnerships and platform partnerships teams at Stripe, the new standard in online payments that handles billions of dollars of business business every year for forward-thinking businesses around the world. To date, Stripe has raised over $680 million in funding from some of the very best in the business, including Sequoia, Founders Fund, General Catalyst, Thrive, Capital G, Kleiner Perkins, and Tiger Global, just to name a few. And as for Christina, at Stripe, she manages partnerships with some of the biggest global players, including Apple Pay, Google Pay, WeChat Pay, and more. And she's also held roles such as Head of Diversity and Inclusion and Manager of Partner Engineering. And prior to Stripe, Christina was Head of Business development at Pulse, which was acquired by LinkedIn, and was in the marketing team at Tapulous, which was acquired by Disney. And I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Claire for the intro to Christina today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the show with Christina today, I want to spend a minute to talk about Mixmax, the customer engagement and workflow automation application for sales, customer success, and recruiting. Mixmax transforms your business email communication and automates your daily tasks so you can be 10 times more efficient and effective when working with prospects and customers. So that's the formal description. Why do I personally love it? Well, you know exactly who opened your email and when. You can schedule meetings in one email with a calendar integration. That's a really awesome feature for me. I love that one. The templates and sequences mean you can create the perfect email with one click. And the automated workflow eliminates all of my manual tasks. So check out why I'm such a power user and head to MixMax.com for more. I have to say it really is insanely good. And if MixMax really helps you to optimize email communications, Infusionsoft is there to help you create order with your customers and business. Infusionsoft allows you to put all your customer info in one place and so it's easier to see the latest status on tasks, sales opportunities and email results. Plus you can even set up a workflow that automatically sends customizable emails to help move a potential customer forward. That and many more reasons is why over 30,000 small businesses love and trust Infusionsoft and you can sign up today for a 14 day free trial and you don't even need a credit card that's on Infusionsoft.com and then finally if Mixmax and Infusionsoft help you create process, as a founder or operator your next crucial job is people operation That could be hiring execs, developing top managers, retaining talent, and building a high-performing culture. And that's where you need Lattice. Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. And it helps companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a really strong company culture. And with Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And that's really important, because Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement. So operators can really make sure top performance Performers are happy. And check this out. Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive that offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com forward slash Sasta. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. However, I'm now very excited to hand over to Christina Cordova at Stripe. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Christina, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show, having heard so many great things from Claire. So thank you so much for joining me today, Christina. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Not at all, but I'd love to kick off today with a little about you. So tell me, how did you make your way into the world of SaaS and come to join one of the fastest growing companies of our time in Stripe? 
Sure. So I guess I started out at a company called Tapulous, which was my first technology startup that I've ever worked for. They actually made games for the iPhone. So before the iPhone even had the App Store and the notion that you could download apps that were not made by Apple, Tapulous would basically build all of these mobile games and you could download them on uh, jailbroken phones. So I joined the company as an intern and that was my very first world of joining technology startups. And from there, I joined a company called Pulse, which made a mobile news reading app. And both of these apps were basically first of their kind in the app store model of the world. And for us, it was really about how could we build tools and services that people loved, typically from the consumer end of the world. So when I originally got to know the founders of Stripe, which I met Patrick at a barbecue, so very small world indeed. And I learned what Stripe was doing. It was very different from anything I had done before. Stripe is really building infrastructure and tools for developers, a very different ecosystem than one I had worked in before. And that was something that really struck me because when I had worked at all the other companies, I was actually a user of the products as a consumer. And going to Stripe, I realized that I didn't actually have to be like a developer or an engineer to understand the value of the product, but instead that I could see how much value other people were getting from the product and really know that we had amazing product market fit and developers who really loved our product. So that's kind of how I got into Stripe. And my word, do they love it. But uh, that was over six (laughs) years ago that you joined. And so I do want to kick off with an age-old adage that I often hear on the show, and it's that people are destined for certain stages of a company's life. Now, you are living proof that this is not the case always. So before we dive into that, how to scale, I'm really intrigued in terms of how do you think about whether one can determine whether one has the ability to scale with the company or not? What are the leading indicators that an individual can or cannot scale, do you think? Sure. So I would say first you should determine, do you actually have the ability to scale? And then do you actually want to be the person who helps a company scale? Because I think there are a lot of people who have the ability, but then they look around and they say, oh, I don't think I want to be at a company that's going to scale that fast. Or maybe what they really like is a company that's at a much smaller stage and they don't like that larger stage, even if they have the actual ability to do that. But if we focus on whether or not someone actually has the ability to scale with the company, you know, one, I think there are a bunch of signs that when someone is, is not quite scaling properly. So they start, for example, like micromanaging their team. They're doing a lot of reminiscing about the old ways of doing things, how the company used to get things done and, and how things are different now. And I think a lot of the folks who actually do have that ability to scale are instead looking at how are they going to gain leverage through working with other people rather than just gaining leverage through working on their own. And two, I think they spend a lot of time on building new systems and processes. So as the company grows, they look around and they say, well, this isn't kind of going so well anymore. And the way that we used to do things isn't you know, really serving us at this point in our lifetime as a company. And instead, we should build this new system that actually helps us operate better. And being okay with the fact that that system may only last a year until you have to move on to a new system. And that's something I find with people who are really ready to scale with the company and do it in stride. They really like that kind of constant change and evolution of the company. So if that's the individuals that can scale and implement kind of new processes and have that mental plasticity to see them maybe change, and we have that candidate now, what have been your biggest lessons of what one can do to scale with a company from as when you joined at 20? 28 people to now being 1,300 today. What were those big lessons? 
Sure. I would say, one, think about how you can grow with the company rather than letting the company grow around you. And I think that's one lesson I learned really early on as being a leader on a relatively small strategic team. There are a lot of teams in companies that are supposed to scale to be very, very large. You see this with engineering teams, with sales teams, with operation teams, but with a partnership team, The whole idea is that you're doing things that are very, very high leverage, and you're only going to be doing a few of them. And the idea for that means that you have a smaller team than you would have in other functions. And it can seem that as the company is growing and being very, very fast growth, that all these other functions are kind of growing around you and that you're kind of getting swallowed up. When the reality is that you should be thinking about, well, now that I'm looking for different opportunities for partnerships that can really change the trajectory of a company that is a thousand people versus a company that is 30 people. So I think it forces you to think bigger. And that was one of the lessons I learned early on. And then two, I would say it's easily to really kind of complain about things that aren't going so well in a company that's very fast growth. And one thing I would say is that it's It's easy to criticize things that aren't going so well. It's much harder to actually introduce a proposal for how things could be better. And that was one of the lessons that I learned, that it was really about not reminiscing about the old days, but thinking about what really needed to be changed so that we could introduce new systems and processes to fix things that had gone out of control or out of a way that we were kind of used to operating. So those were a couple of the things that I think I learned very, very early on. And then the last thing for me would be think about all the different ways that I could really help people around me, whether that's like folks who are internal to the company or folks that are external. So I think that if you as a person in a growing company are constantly looking at, let's say, your manager and you're saying, well, how can I help that person do better and you know be a better leader for the company? And what could I do that could possibly help them get more leverage out of me? And I think if you say that both internally and then for external purposes, you know, I think that about our partners all day. Like, how can I make sure that they're getting more value out of Stripe as we get bigger? And I try to help others as much as I possibly can. And I think that can be a great way to ultimately help yourself and help the company grow as well. Before we dive into the partnership side there, you mentioned there about seeing multiple functions surround you with the fast growth of a company. I'm really interested because over the last six years, I'm sure you've had many different roles within the company. In terms of adapting to new roles on new teams. What do you think the key to success here is? And what did you do that worked so well, if you don't mind me asking? So I think at Stripe, I've I've always had my core role, which has been partnerships or business development, kind of depending on what you call it at a given company. And then for the last two to three years, I've always had a role in addition to that. So in Elad Gill's uh, high growth handbook, they call it the gap filler role. I think in a lot of companies, you can have people who go around and fill a lot of these gaps until you get to a place where the organization is much more filled out and that you filled these holes. I tended to stick with what I thought I was really good at for the company, which was business development, and then also take on these quote-unquote side jobs of going around and standing up some teams that didn't exist, building out some functions that really needed more scale and figuring out how I could help there. So I think that for me, it was really about coming in and thinking about this new function, whatever it was, and not having a stake in the game because I think everyone looked at me as like, oh, I'm just temporarily here. I'm, I'm here to kind of help fix something. 
something, stand something up, and then I'm going to kind of move on to my next thing. So a lot of people didn't look at me as someone who was like territory grabbing or anything like that. And I would just ask people, like, how do they think that we should make things better? And it's surprising, you know, how many people in a given function actually have a lot of ideas for how things improve, but they often don't believe that they have the social capital or the power in a company when it scales to actually get those things done and make that change when in fact they haven't even tried. So in a lot of ways, I'm just sitting there and kind of taking in all of these ideas and I tend to have very like ruthless execution and this experimental attitude to go out and try a bunch of things and see what works and what doesn't. Can I ask, you're on the West Coast, you work at, as we said, one of the fastest growing companies of our day. Where do you often see then, if that's kind of what worked, where do you often see others maybe make mistakes or falter in adapting to new roles? Yeah, I would say in adapting to new roles, I think a lot of people can come in and think that they know how things are supposed to be done. And in reality, when you're coming into a new role, especially if you're leading a team of people, a lot of those people actually have more experience in that area than you do. So, you know, if I were to come in and lead, let's say, a marketing team, the team of product marketers would have much more experience than I would. And so it's a matter of thinking about what you bring to the table that the rest of the team doesn't. And so for me at Stripe, it's about looking around at the broader company and thinking about ways that we could get leverage or various different gaps that need to be filled, cross-functional dependencies that haven't been figured out. And that's where I can really add value. Am I going to help someone be like a better product marketer from day one if I've never done product marketing? Probably not so much. So I think it's about being honest about where you are going to be really helpful within a given team. And that might be outside of the general expertise of that team, but it can be something that's really, really helpful. I mean, you know, I'll tell you, I've managed a partner engineering team for four or five months in my time at Stripe to kind of stand that team up. And that was an experience where, you know, you have to come in and say, I do not know your function. I'm not an engineer by training. Taken a couple of computer science classes, but you know, not something that, that I have chosen to do with my career. And I think coming in saying, this is not what I'm an expert at, but here are ways that I can help you. And what are the things that you think I can help with are ways that I think a lot of people can come into new roles and be successful. And where I would see a lot of people fail coming in and kind of claiming to be an expert when they're really not. Yeah, absolutely. I think that kind of humility removes a lot of attention. Sorry, I'm too intrigued not to ask this one because it's one that I get from a lot of early employees. And it's kind of two elements to stumble on, which is title and equity. So if we start with title, what's the right way to think about title, maybe in the early days and when considering one's role in a company? Sure. I would say for title, it's not something I would spend a lot of time on within an early stage company. Titles should be very fluid. And I think one of the reasons why Stripe has been so successful to date is that, you know, we've had people come in and we say, you know, hey, you're going to lead this function, right? But in a year, a year and a half, that function may look very, very different. And so it may make sense at that point to say, well, let's have a different structure. And I think a title can actually get in the way of that. So if you bring someone in as like a VP or a C-level executive, and then later you want to change their function and maybe they're reporting to someone else, it can be very difficult. And that person often feels so hurt uh, and demoralized by kind of losing their title, quote unquote, that they leave. When in reality, they just may be a great director, but not a fantastic VP when a company is scaling from 10 people to 100 people. So I wouldn't optimize for the title in a 
lot of ways, I would instead optimize for equity. And I find that actually a lot of startups in a very early stage will say, hey, you're a VP or you're a C-level executive, but then the equity that they actually offer is director level or managerial level equity. And so it really doesn't matter. Like I'd much rather get VP level equity and not have the title than to get the title and not have C-level equity. So I think it's really about thinking through what you're going to bring to a company and then being realistic about what that company is going to give you and not get too wrapped up in things like titles when I think for a lot of early stage companies, you kind of really want that optionality to change things as the company grows. And if you do a great job, generally companies will reward you with that title over time. Absolutely. And I couldn't agree with you more in terms of that kind of title plasticity. It's something I've always actually so respected about Stripe. But I do have to dive into the partnerships element with you today. So let's start on the partner side, an element that you obviously love, but you've told me before that it's a very different and special thing, partnerships at early stage startups. So what's so different and special about early stage partnerships? So I would say one, partnerships at a really early stage can be in a lot of ways dangerous and potentially trajectory changing in a bad way, but they can also be very trajectory changing in a good way for a company. So the one thing I would say is, you know, typically at an early stage, you have companies that are really deciding whether or not they partner with very large companies. And when you're partnering with large companies to really scale your startup business, often you don't have a whole lot of leverage as startup in the scenario. And the companies are probably not very incentivized to move fast or treat you very well as a startup. And so I think doing startups at a really early stage can be quite dangerous because you may not be getting the best kind of deal that you could potentially be getting. And it could throw off your entire team. So for example, if you decide to say, well, we need half our engineering team to focus on getting this partnership out the door. And then that team decides to stop spending time on things like finding product market fit. It can be a really bad idea to put resources towards that partnership. So I think it has to be the right time to do partnerships at an early stage company. And I think what's really special about it is hitting that right timing for a particular company. And then two, making sure that you work with companies that are going to really value the strategic offering that you have as a startup and kind of what you're bringing to the table. I mean, so much to unpack there. I do have to start with the value element. How can a startup determine whether this is a conversation they can really devote time to and the partners really as bought in as their enthusiasm might suggest? Sure. So one is, is the company that you're thinking about partnering with strategically valuable in your space? Or are they just like a brand name? And I think a lot of large companies kind of ride on that brand name. And as a result, you think, well, if I'm going to partner with this really large company, we just have to do it because they're so big. And in reality, you're as a startup probably offering more value to that company than what they think they might be offering to you. So as an example, you know, Stripe offers a lot in the developer community. And so when companies come to us, they are often valuing that developer credibility, the ability to build really great like technical infrastructure products. And so as a result, when we partner with other organizations, they really value that highly and they probably don't bring as much to the table there. And for a lot of startups, what your value prop might be could be very different. You may not be in the developer space, but it's really about how you set the right expectations with those partners as to what value you're bringing to the table and what value you 
expect them to bring to the table. So a good way of really thinking through that is what does this company bring to you that's particularly special? Are you going to get a lot of user growth out of that company? Are they going to go to market with your product? And so define the metrics of success upfront with that partnership and then determine what happens if you don't hit those KPIs. So does the partnership die at that point? Do you pivot it? I don't like to spend a whole lot of time on like downside scenario planning, but I think it is really helpful to think through, okay, if this doesn't quite work out how we expect it to, uh, what's next? Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more in terms of that. Can I ask, how do you think about the partnership element? Often with founders concerned that it leads to an acquisition. Is that something that is a prominent part of your role in terms of mitigating that concern? And, and how do you think about that build, buy, or partner theory that is often propagated in the Valley? Sure. I would say, you know, certainly one way to prevent an acquisition, especially if you as a company, you don't want to be acquired and you're, you're really just looking to partner, is to think about ways where this partnership does not make or break your business. And so if you're working with a partner where, you know, they end up becoming 50% of your business or they end up driving 50% of your business, that can in some ways look great for the partnership person who did that deal because it's driving a lot of value. But on the flip side, it can be very, very dangerous if you don't have a great core business so that the partnership isn't something that if you lose, it ends up becoming a detriment to the overall business and, and really a deterrent to kind of working on things for direct customers as well. So one, I would say find a partner where you get a win-win, a partnership that is mutually beneficial. I think it's really important to ensure that the partner is getting value out of this, but also that you are too. And it's not just about kind of working with those kind of brand names. And then two, make sure that you get like the 80-20 of what you want. So I think you can focus a lot on the details and it can really kind of drag out the time to get a deal done. But it's really important that you say, here are the five things that matter. And ideally, we get four or five of those things. And there might be some additional details that are important, but not that important. And you could use those as a negotiation tactic to really get to the things that you really want, because you can give those small things up because you don't ultimately really care about them just to get the big things that you do care about. Can I ask, are there commonalities in the big things that one does care about? I would say one would be kind of no egregious terms. So thinking about a lot of deals that startups get offered, you know, for example, like there's a five-year term on this particular partnership when your startup has only existed for nine months. And so it's a, it's a little crazy to sign up for what would be like a really, really long-term relationship. It's okay to sign up for a relationship like that if you're getting a lot of value out of it. So, you know, you could say, well, I'm happy to sign up for this five-year deal if that means you give us X amount of revenue every year, or if that means Y amount of customers are being brought in. And if that doesn't happen, then you have the ability to terminate the deal. So thinking about ways where you can minimize the risk of some of these egregious terms or you get rid of them entirely and just say no to them, I think is really crucial. I would say two is really thinking about what this partnership is going to require your team to do in terms of resourcing. Most of the partnerships that we're doing at Stripe, for example, are partnerships that do require a significant amount of engineering investment. And so if we are investing what is a resource that is much more 
more constrained than anything else, cash, et cetera, then I want to make sure that those resources are really going to something that is valuable for the company at the end of the day. So I think really taking a step back and saying, are you willing to take engineers off of the third most important thing that's valuable to your customers and shipping that? Or do you want to put those engineers towards this particular partnership? So I think just taking a step back and making sure that it is really the right thing to do is really crucial. I couldn't agree with you more there in terms of kind of the importance of thinking about resource allocation. I would love though to kind of quickly flip to the other side of the table though and to your side of the table being from kind of the larger player in the partnership relationship. Mm -hmm. When when considering the partnership pipe for you, what makes you lean in on a potential partnership? I would say the thing that makes me lean in on a particular partnership is very much the company that's coming to the table and whether they have something unique to bring. So for example, a lot of the companies that we work with are very unique in their particular space. So I'll give you an example. Very, very early on, we decided to partner with Apple to offer Apple Pay to all of our businesses on Stripe so that they could very quickly and easily accept Apple Pay transactions just as fast as they would with a credit card transaction. And for us, the game-changing element for us in making that decision to basically thwart a lot of engineering resources and, and kind of move them over to this potential partnership effort was really thinking through what does Apple uniquely bring to the table where we think they will be successful in this effort. And then we therefore have to make sure that we are part of that experience. So for us, it was the fact that Apple has billions of consumers all around the world with their devices and that it's unfortunately very difficult to pay on those devices. If you think about having to enter in a credit card and bring the credit card out and they'll continue to type in all those numbers on your phone, it is quite annoying and difficult to do that. And if we have you know, some core principles that we believe in, which are that payments should be easier, that payments are becoming increasingly mobile and increasingly contextual in the experiences that you live in as a consumer. So we believe in payments being native to the applications that you run on your devices, for example. So thinking about like what are the core principles that you really believe in? Does this company actually believe in those same core principles? And then two, what's the strategic differentiator that this particular company is bringing to the table? So for Apple, that's consumers with these devices. You know, Stripe isn't going to be making hardware. We don't have a consumer product. They're bringing something to the table that we really do value. And those two things are really things that we thought through as why we should do this and why this particular partnership is different from some of the others that might come to the table. So I think it's really about figuring out what working with big companies could mean for the company and making sure that you don't just say yes purely because of the name. No, I completely agree with that element. But I, I do have to ask, before we move into the quick fire, I spoke to your wonderful colleague, Claire, before our conversation, and she mentioned your incredible skill when it comes to executing, when really, in a lot of cases with early stage companies, there remains a large amount of uncertainty. So how do you think about decision-making processes without a lot of information or data to really validate a belief in one partnership? Sure. So one, I would say, you know, certainly when you have lots of data, you should use it to make decisions. When when you don't have a lot of data, I would say you should lean on what your users want and really focus on rapid experimentation. So if something doesn't quite work, then move on, but figure out how you can quickly experiment and move without having to really build out this long-term strategy without having any data points at all. So as an example, I think for a lot of the things that we've done at Stripe, I have 
have proposed something as a potential change in strategy. And you'll find a lot of people around the room will say like, oh, I don't know if we should make that decision. We don't have a lot of data. And my response is always, well, how about we just try this as an experiment? And so I continue to do exactly what I was planning on doing, but maybe I do it at a smaller scale so that it doesn't affect our entire customer base. And then I say, well, here were the results from that experiment. And maybe that's why we should roll this out to the broader user base, for example. It's like the MVP of partnerships. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So I think for us, it's really about how do you take those small steps and continue executing so that the process doesn't actually hold you up. And I think at a lot of companies, once you get to this stage, you can really get to a point where making decisions is, is kind of a paralyzing process. And if you're really not making like a trapdoor decision, and by that I mean a decision that you can't come back from, I think you really should try to experiment your way there, then make a decision that you can't turn back from. So for example, like in our business, it's always about pricing your product to its true value. And so for a lot of the new products that we're offering, we can go around to some early beta customers and say, well, what do you think of this pricing? What do you think of this pricing? And I'd much rather do that than say, let's spend hours and hours and hours building a large strategy around our pricing without ever having spoken to a customer who could really tell us you know, whether we are pricing to that value or not. And so for us, it's really about you know, how can we use our customers, use our ecosystem, really understand what's out there to help inform some of the decisions that we need to make rather than getting kind of mired in a lot of this decision making. And that way you can continue to move fast towards execution. I absolutely love that. It is the MVP of partnership. That is brilliant. But I do want to finish, Christina, today on a quick fire round. So it's my favorite of any interview. So essentially, I say a short statement and then you give me your immediate thoughts. Are you ready? Sure. So tell me a moment in your life, Christina, that served maybe as an inflection point and changed the way you think. So I lived alone for two years when I was actually a young child, teenager and in junior high. And that was something where really taught me that I could pretty much do anything. And as long as I kind of really thought about all the different ways in which I could execute on those things without having to you know, be an adult or have an adult around me, it really taught me to be quite independent. Who is killing it in SaaS partnerships today other than Stripe, of course, and why? Sure. I'd say in terms of like up and coming companies, one company that's really doing a great job today is Segment. And very much because a lot of the partnerships that they do are core to their business, they basically connect all the different data sources that you might want to use as a SaaS business uh, for analytics purposes. And then advice in SaaS that you most commonly hear given that you maybe disagree with? I would say I disagree with the notion that growth is good at, at all costs. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more there. And then for startups that are growing incredibly fast, when's the right time to hire someone who manages the partnership process? I would say you should hire a head of partnerships when you have determined that partnerships are a good thing for your business and you've executed a couple of partnerships from end to end before you actually go out and hire someone to do that full time. Now, tell me, a final one here. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? And it can be at the beginning of your time with Stripe six years ago or the beginning of really your kind of career with Tapulous, but at the beginning of dot, dot, dot. Sure. So I would say at the beginning of my time at Stripe, I wish I had known that the only thing that's constant at Stripe will be change. I love that. That that should be a book. What a title. (laughs) But Christina, I heard so many wonderful things, as I said, from Claire. So thank you so much for joining me today. And it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Of course. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. 
What a special guest to have on the show there. And I want to say a huge thank you to Christina for giving up her time today to appear on the show. And a big thank you to Claire Hughes-Johnson for the fantastic questions today. Also, if you'd like to see more from Christina, you can find her on Twitter at CJC. That's CJC. Likewise, we'd love to see you behind the scenes here at Sasty. You can do that on Instagram at hdebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, I want to spend a minute to talk about Mixmax, the customer engagement and workflow automation application for sales, customer success, and recruiting. Mixmax transforms your business email communication and automates your daily tasks so you can be 10 times more efficient and effective when working with prospects and customers. So that's the formal description. Why do I personally love it? Well, you know exactly who opened your email and when. You can schedule meetings in one email with a calendar integration. That's a really awesome feature for me. I love that one. The templates and sequences mean you can create the perfect email with one click and the automated workflow eliminates all of my manual tasks. So check out why I'm such a power user and head to Mixmax.com for more. I have to say it really is insanely good. And if Mixmax really helps you to optimize email communications, Infusionsoft is there to help you create order with your customers and business. Infusionsoft allows you to put all your customer info in one place, and so it's easier to see the latest status on tasks, sales opportunities, and email results. Plus, you can even set up a workflow that automatically sends customizable emails to help move a potential customer forward. That and many more reasons is why over 30,000 small businesses love and trust Infusionsoft, and you can sign up today for a 14-day free trial and you don't even need a credit card that's on infusionsoft.com and then finally if mixmax and infusionsoft help you create process as a founder or operator your next crucial job is people operations that could be hiring execs developing top managers retaining talent and building a high performing culture and that's where you need lattice lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies and it helps companies like asana reddit and cruise build a really strong company culture and with lattice it's easy to launch 360 reviews share ongoing feedback facilitate one-on-one set up goals tracking and even run employee engagement surveys and that's really important because Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement so operators can really make sure top performers are happy and check this out Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive that offer that's l-a-t-t-i-c-e dot com forward slash Sasta build an award-winning culture with Lattice the number one people management solution as always I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you an exceptional episode next week.